The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to Out of Office. This week, we're continuing our conversations that focus on equality. Biology should not determine one's destiny. Meet Audrey Tang. As far as I know, she's the first openly transgender minister in the world. The digital minister of Taiwan, she's been recognized for Taiwan's handling of the pandemic. It's managed to keep infection rates under control, largely due to its use of technology, which, for example, helps people access masks. So people would not have to, um, you know, shop for pharmacies uh, that still have masks in stock before they go outdoor. They can just check the map for the availabilities. But that's just one part of Audrey's story. Dubbed a child prodigy, she was reading classical literature by the time she was five, doing advanced math by six, programming by the age of eight. I worked with computer from a very early age, and I understood that whatever problems uh, people throw at me during the IQ tests, computer actually do it better and faster than I do. Audrey speaks to us about technology and trust, her personal journey as a transgender person, finding solutions in her sleep, and how her phone helps her manage her work-life balance. I have my personal phone, a, a flip phone running KaiOS. It's a feature phone without a touch screen, so no uh, touch screen addiction. Here's more of my conversation with Audrey Tang. Audrey, welcome to Out of Office. Hello, and have a good local time, everyone. Audrey, Taiwan has been praised globally for the way it's handled the pandemic and you've managed to keep infections really low. Can you briefly tell us what role technology has played to control the pandemic in your country? Well, the most important technology, of course, is chemical. It's called soap and alcohol hand sanitizers. Uh, but next to the soap and uh, hand sprays, of course, is the medical masks. Uh, in Taiwan, very early on, uh, we adopted a way of rationing out medical masks. Uh, and everybody can queue in a pharmacy using their national health identity card, which um, ensures more than 99.99% of citizens and residents, uh, so that it's very predictable. You just go to your nearby pharmacy. Once the transaction is made, after a couple of minutes, the people queuing behind you will actually see the number deplete on that particular pharmacy, on that particular map. So people would not have to um, you know, shop for pharmacies uh, that still have masks in stock before they go outdoor. They can just check the map for the availability. So that's called a medical mask availability map. That's, of course, one of the main um, civic technologies we deploy. So it's about giving people information, right? So that you don't queue up for hours sometimes to go to a pharmacy and find that they actually don't have masks or what you're looking for. It's also reassuring people. Like when we're ramping up medical mass production from 2 million a day to 20 million a day, everybody can see it very transparently on the medical mask map. And they don't have to trust the numbers from the government because everybody can participate in the accountability uh, like literally every 30 seconds. And the same uh, principle applies 
applies uh, to this toll-free number 1922. If you see anything wrong with the medical mass rationing, you just call that number and your feedback will be taken into the daily live-streamed press conference of the Central Epidemic Command Center, the CECC, the very next day. And it doesn't have to do, do anything with mask either. Um, there was a young boy back in April uh, whose family called the toll-free line saying, my boy doesn't want to go to school because you're rationing masks and all we get is pink medical mask and the boy was afraid that he could, he'll get bullied uh, by his classmates at school. Uh, because he didn't want to wear pink, yes. That's right, exactly. Uh, and then the very next day in the live stream CECC press conference, every medical officer wore pink medical masks, including Minister oh, Chen Shizhong. That's right. And Minister Chen said, oh, Pink Panther was his childhood hero or something. Uh, and suddenly the boy became the most hip boy in the class because only he had the color that the heroes wear. And so this very fast iteration, trusting the people to come up with such innovation is also very important. Andre, what sparked your interest in technology? Back when I was uh, eight years old in 1989, um, I was very interested in mathematics, that is to say, to look for the um, common structures out of very different um, phenomena. Uh, but I'm really uh, not at all interested in making calculations because I make a lot of mistakes uh, when I calculate by hand. Um, and so a computer that, I guess, computes uh, for me um, is excellent because then I don't have to do any tedious calculations anymore once I learn about some formula or whatever, I can just teach it to computer. And then I discovered something, that a computer with a graphical interface um, can actually teach, uh, as a teacher, what I have learned to other people without um, consuming my time. So I can write computer games, for example. I, I think one of my first games wrote, but was uh, at a time, um, things that taught uh, fractionals uh, to other children. Uh, and so it was a line between zero and one, and then a lot of uh, kind of uh, bubbles uh, on that line uh, that represent the fractionals. And then one would guess maybe it is um, three quarters, and then uh, a um, pin would uh, appear on the three quarters, uh, but then it would miss the bubble a little bit, and then you have to guess and so on. And so basically it's teaching the idea of fractionals by interaction. And once I understood the idea of fractionals, I don't have to teach each uh, of my classmates uh, or my sibling uh, individually. I can just uh, ask them to, to play the game. And so it was very rewarding. How old were you when you did all this? Eight years old. The press calls you a child prodigy. And you were reading classical literature by the time you were five, doing advanced maths by the time you were six, programming by the time you were eight, and doing advanced programming by the time you were 12. When did you become aware that you were gifted, that you were different from other kids? Back at the time, uh, of course, uh, I enrolled in quite a few uh, IQ tests uh, at a time. Uh, but I mean, to me, it, it doesn't mean much, though, uh, because uh, I work with computer from a very early age. And I understood that whatever um, problems uh, people throw at me during the IQ tests, computer actually do it better and faster than I do. Uh, and so I, right, so, so it's the computer that's gifted, um, not particularly me. Um, and so I, I really don't think I'm that different from other people. Maybe I had early access to computers and computational thinking, as we will now call it, and that's the main difference. But nowadays, I mean, seven years old in Taiwan are playing Scratch all the time, uh, and so that become kind of universal. 
At the same time, schooling wasn't easy for you, and you changed school, elementary school, five times, I believe. Yeah, that's three kindergartens, six primary schools, one junior high, and a dropout on the second year of junior high. So, Audrey, what happened? Each year, something、uh, different happened,、uh, and I can't recap all of it.、Uh, but、uh, some there's a a common strand, right?、Uh, I would be interested,、uh, driven by my curiosity,、uh, on a phenomena. For example, why do people trust each other online so easily,、uh, but face to face is more difficult? It's a phenomenon called swift trust. And to explain that phenomena, at the time there wasn't even a field of、uh, internet sociology. Right, so I have to learn about pretty much、uh, everything related. It could be anthropology, could be philosophy, could be applied linguistics, and things like that.、Uh, and none of this is taught in a junior high. And in fact, even in universities,、uh, there's no single class, a single major uh, that um, explores all of this.、Uh, and so I just told my teacher、uh, at the time that I want to quit school because the future of the human knowledge is being created on this brand new thing called the World Web. And I found this great website, arxiv archive.org, which is still around, by the way,、um, where people post their preprints,、uh, and and there I see this really cross-discipline dialogue happening. And when I write an email to the researcher、um, asking questions,、um, they would write back, not knowing I'm just a 14 years old, so I'm not discriminated by age.、Uh, and so the head of my school、um, look at the email printouts, thought about it for a minute, and say, okay, tomorrow you don't. Have to go to school anymore? I will cover for you. That is to say, fake the record for me、uh, because it was compulsory education back then, and that's that's what enabled me、um, to、uh, start my own company and also joining、uh, the Internet Engineering Task Force, the、uh, Perl community, and so on. That is the early days of free software and later on open source, and it also instilled in me this optimism of the capability of innovation in the public sector. I consider the public servants the most innovative. People,、um, including the head of my school. How did your parents react to this? They、uh, recommended that I、uh, just drop in randomly to the classes、uh, that. Uh, they did attend. So when I drop out of、uh, the junior high, I would attend the nearby university, the National Zhengzhi University,、uh, which is、uh, both my parents、uh, did their graduate level work and their undergrad work actually.、Um, and so their professor will become my professors,、uh, except I don't get a degree. <laughs>、uh, but then because I guess they know my parents already, so there's this implicit、uh, again trust、uh, that I'm not there to you know troll their classroom, <laughs> that my questions are sincere. And real, and they just treat me like an adult, and this really is like a、mm, Pygmalion effect. That if you treat a fourteen years old like a forty years old,、uh, they will behave like a forty years old, and if it, you treat them like a four years old,、uh, like a, just a kid, just a you know baby, really,、uh, they will actually act in a way that is、uh, not very considerate.、Uh, and so, yeah, I think my parents' main、uh, contribution really、uh, is just to introduce me to researchers who care more about doing research to. Together, rather than to、um, discriminate based on age. You're also Taiwan's first transgender minister. I don't know. I'm the first openly transgender minister in the world, but maybe everybody else is. It's just they were not open about it. Yeah, you're right. That could very well be the case. So I should correct myself. You are definitely Taiwan's first openly transgender、uh, minister. Maybe with the first openly transgender minister in the world. Again, so going back to your childhood, when did you realize? 
that you were transgender mm-hmm. was there what do you remember of the early days was there confusion uh, you know just walk us through that yeah during my my first puberty uh, when I was was uh, 13 years old or so uh, it's quite apparent that um, I don't go through this full male puberty. Uh, I would later on get my testosterone level checked uh, and the doctors tell me that I have a natural testosterone level even after the male puberty uh, that's somewhere between the male and the female um, and around the level of an 80-year-old man, basically. Um, 80-year-old man, right, okay. Right, so, um, so that uh, influenced me that I don't know whether it's because of my heart condition. I was born with a, a congenital heart defect or whether it's some development differences uh, it doesn't matter what matters is that uh, my brain never quite specialized um, based on the very high testosterone level Uh, and so instead of confusion I guess um, it's also liberating in a way uh, because um, I could empathize with more people it also enabled me to go through a second puberty when I was in my early 20s uh, with hormonal uh, therapy uh, but I didn't have to take a large dose of uh, anti-testosterone strong to go through the female puberty and develop uh, again for another couple years. So in my mind, there's no half of population different from me, um, but rather I'm more readily able to take all the signs. And how did your family react to this part of you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're fine with it. Uh, and uh, we um, talked about the new name, uh, the new kanji name, uh, because my original kanji name is uh, very masculine, like super masculine. Uh, and uh, my new kanji name, uh, which is literally Phoenix, uh, is very interesting because um, it used to be um, a male Phoenix. But then uh, when Phoenix is next to dragons, it also conveys femininity. Uh, And so it's a very transgender word. uh, And we talked about um, possible word choices and so on and finally settled on this. And what about society? You know, your extended uh, family, society, neighbors, friends. Mm -hmm. How did they react to you? Well, I mean, in my family or extended family, really, there wasn't much of a gender stereotype anyway. Uh, when, when my mom... Is that uh, unusual? Is that unusual for a, a Taiwanese family? Well, um, I think we're very transcultural anyway in our families. Um, and like my four grandparents came from four different cities uh, and uh, three of which not in Taiwan. So, um, I mean, it's already a very transcultural uh, family that we have here. And also it helps that in Taiwan, uh, we're, I think, the most uh, LGBTIQ plus um, friendly community, even when I did a transition uh, in 2005 or so, uh, openly. Uh, And at that time already, uh, we host the largest pride uh, in Asia, well, this year we will hold the only physical pride, uh, not only in Asia, but pretty much anywhere. Uh, and then, uh, and then uh, marriage equality is already on the legislative agenda back then. Uh, and so I think I'm also supported by a very uh, vibrant and good um, support of the queer uh, community, non-binary community, um, also the indigenous nations, uh, the 20 or so national languages in Taiwan. Most of them indigenous already have the idea, like in the Pai one nation, gender doesn't matter. It's neither a matriarchy or patriarchy. Or in, in many other indigenous, uh, like in Amis, is a matriarchy. Um, in many other indigenous nations, uh, they have more than two genders and so on. And that also helps. And Taiwan is the first Asian country to legalize same-sex marriage, isn't it? 
That's right. We legalize the bylaws, but not the in-laws. That is to say, when two same-sex people wed, they wed as individuals, enjoying the same rights and responsibilities as heterosexual couples. But their families do not wed. They do not、uh, form in-law relationships. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies, from big tech to startups, will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions, alongside Snap's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond. OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at bloomberg.com/techsf. I think for people in your country to see you holding the position that you hold of、mm-hmm. a cabinet minister is absolutely amazing.、Mm-hmm. And what kind of role model do you hope you are for the people of your country? Yeah, well, not just my country, but pretty much、uh, everywhere, right?、Uh, because, yeah, because、um, really, biology should not determine one's destiny. Uh, and that is the main idea I want to get across.、Uh, certainly, when I was eight years old, the computer doesn't care about my gender or the fact that I'm left-handed. Eventually, I would train my right hand because I would type very fast、uh, using two hands as opposed to one. I guess, but <laughs> but really, it's the idea of intersectionality. Everyone is minority in some aspects, and when we、uh, can get into the mindset that everyone is a minority,、uh, so to speak, we can also then more readily take. All the size and empathize with all the people. So the main message is the non-binary message. As I said, I don't consider half of the population as different from me. So technology, like you said, doesn't know a person's gender. Do you think technology can play a role in creating a more inclusive culture in our societies, in making societies across the world more accepting, more equal? More fair. Definitely, it's easier to build empathy if you can literally step into each other's shoes, and that's what virtual reality <laughs> enable us to do. I used to have a.、Um Press conference really uh, with uh, primary schoolers and junior high schoolers asking me questions, and that was in virtual reality. I was in Paris; they were in Taipei, and I three D scanned myself and、uh, imbued myself into their、um, like school、uh, in a three D scan. And basically, they see me, my avatar, really、uh, as the same height as they are. So in reality, I'm one point eight eighty meters high,、uh, but、uh, in Virtual reality, I'm exactly the same height as they are, so they are much more open,、uh, much more inclusive. They can treat me as a fellow kid、uh, and then、uh, ask me、uh, direct questions without 
just looking up on me, literally. Yeah, so that will also then uh, make us uh, think of scenarios where we can, for example, uh, put ourselves in the shoes of um, the, the leopard uh, or the, the leopard cat, <laughs> which is an endangered species in Taiwan, very important in public constructions. Uh, and it would also enable interspecies um, imagination and communication, which is very important because pre prior to this, uh, these animals do not vote. What impact have you had on other people who have had the courage to be openly transgender because mm-hmm. they probably look at you and think if Audrey can do this, mm-hmm. you know, so can I. Yeah, that's right. And I, I mean, everybody can be a little bit more transgender. Uh, I'm sure that I encourage the participation officer in the Ministry of Health and Welfare to start handing uh, everyone pink medical mask. That's transgender. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so it, it's really um, making sure that people can be more comfortable on the spectrum of, uh, you know, being more rigid in their identities, to be more fluid with their identities. And every day you can be a little bit more fluid and entertain more possibilities and build more intersectionality with other people. And I think that's uh, my main message, not only in gender uh, or in language or in whatever uh, regards, but also in policymaking, because then by uh, empowering people who are closest uh, to the field, we also make sure that we see things from the eyes of the, say, indigenous people, the rural, the offshore islands, and so on. And 5G really helps in that regard as well, because prior to that we can only be confined in place with fiber optics and nowadays we can pretty much go anywhere. Tell me about your work-life balance. I know you're a workaholic but do you manage to get some time to switch off and to walk away from a screen and a computer? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I have my personal phone, a, a flip phone running iOS. is a feature phone without a touch screen, so no uh, touch screen addiction. You use a flip phone? Yes, that's right. That's right. The original one. Uh, and uh, well, it has 4G connectivity, but still the only game I play is snakes uh, on it. Um, so, Are you serious? <laughs> yes, I am serious. I mean, it, it runs oh, Twitter. Oh, wow. Uh, so I can still cho- uh, choose to look at a Twitter, but there's no, you know, uh, addiction because because I have to do everything through intermediation, uh, through the keyboard uh, on the flip phone. And and that's uh, how I manage my attention. And that's how I make sure that I do not get captured into this dopamine, uh, you know, a curiosity cycle uh, on a kind of empty hamster wheel. Rather, I would limit the bandwidth both from the phone and also into the phone so that I can enjoy more the surroundings. And I believe because of the congenital, the heart condition that you were born with, you take some time out for deep breathing and for meditation. Is that something you still do? Yeah, yeah, of course. We are actually in our meditation room uh, as we speak, as you can see. Say this is, if I close the light, uh, it will be pitch dark. Uh, and also great for virtual reality. Uh, and really, this is uh, how I do most of my daily work. Uh, it's just in a very re- relaxed position. Do not pass judgments. Just listen to all the sides very deeply. And uh, if I do need to make a decision or to interpret a new situation, I do that in my dreams. So I would just uh, flip read uh, materials before I go to sleep. And then I work, that is to say sleep, uh, for eight hours and wake up uh, with a solution. And if it's very, very difficult, I will overwork, and that is to say sleep for nine hours or so, and then wake up with a solution. So you ideate and problem solve in your sleep? Yes, and daytime like now is just fun and games. How do you do that? 
If you read、uh, material before going to sleep without sounding them in your head,、uh, it's basically like, like a scanner would,、uh, without passing judgment.、Uh, that decouples、uh, the input、uh, from the processing, and one would not be captured into passing judgment, which would cloud、uh, the comprehension because that we associate one particular effect、uh, with a particular idea. So I just absorb all the ideas and entertain the effect when I was asleep. And when you wake up in the morning, you've worked the、mm-hmm. issues and the problems out in your mind while sleeping. That's right. That's right. Otherwise, I don't、uh, wake up that soon, right? But when it's very, very difficult, it's nine and a half hours of sleep. That's absolutely amazing. It occurs to me, you know, the more I talk to you, it seems you're quite spiritual.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Where does that come from, and how long has this been a part of your life and a part of you? And Was since since I have memory.、Uh, I mean, because of my heart condition, I have to learn to breathe and to keep my heartbeat、uh, calm. Otherwise, I would just faint.、Uh, and so,、uh, so you can't get agitated. That's right. Exactly right.、Uh, and even after I got a surgery when I was twelve years old,、um, it already become、um, really a reflex.、Uh, and so I don't get agitated. Period.、Uh, and so I learned about the Taoist meditation,、uh, the breathing techniques, and things like. That very early on, like when I was four or five,、uh, and so it's with me all the time. Audrey, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you talking to me today. Yeah, thank you. Live long and prosper. That was Audrey Tang, the Digital Minister of Taiwan. And that's it for this week. You know where to find other episodes of Out of Office. We are on Twitter, the Bloomberg Terminal, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Jordan Gasparay. I'm Malika Kapoor. We hope you'll join us again next week. Till then, stay well and thank you for listening. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor: Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at bloomberglive.com/futureinvestor/radio.